1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Yeah, so far we've already, in our series on 1 Corinthians, we've already covered the, the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecies, and we've, we've had teaching on that. And today we're going to be talking about what should worship in a church service look like? Uh, a couple of decade, decades ago, uh, worship in some of the biggest denominations um, pretty much involved a very set and a very regimented order. Some denominations actually had the order printed in a book or a booklet, and every church would have the same book, and, and, and that, they'd follow the order. Step number one, you do this. Step number two, you do that. Step number three, you do this. And, and you knew that the priest or the pastor would say his bit, and then the congregation would say their, their bit. And we stand at this point, and we sit at this point, we pray at this point, and we sing here. It's all set out in the book. No question, you knew exactly what you were going to get. It, it's sort of like going to McDonald's. Um, it's definitely not going to be the best burger in town but at least you know exactly what you're going to get, or pretty much what you're going to get. Um, other denominations, well, they didn't have a book to go by, but the order was just as regimented and just as set. Uh, might be like a traditional free or a four-hymn sandwich. So you have something or other, and then a hymn, and then something else, and then another hymn, and then something else, and another hymn, just to divide it all up. And for many people today, that remains their preferred form of worship. A set order where there's not too many surprises, uh, where we know exactly what's going to happen and, and we know that the order is going to be correct and in order. There's not going to be too much wrong with it. Uh, but today, the most popular form of worship is the mega church model, where you turn up and you basically have church done to you. You know that the band up the front's going to have truly excellent music that you can sing along to or you can just stand there and take it all in. 
Um, then there might be some kind of multimedia presentation uh, to engage all your senses. And then a professional speaker is going to get up and give a very captivating message that will probably make you laugh at times and it'll enthuse you and it'll lift you up. And you just know that when you leave that place, um, you're going to have the impression, wow, wasn't that amazing? And you're going to want to come back again and you're going to want to bring your friends. And many people love that sort of service today. But others prefer a service where everybody gets a chance to do their bit or to say their bit. I guess it's the opposite of the other two models, which are essentially leader-led worship. This becomes participant-led worship. Uh, there's no expectations upon anybody as long as we all feel comfortable enough to share. And the thing is, each of these models have good points to them, but they've also each got their own problems and their own dangers. And I actually believe that whether worship is a good experience or whether it's a bad experience usually has more to do with our hearts and more to do with our relationship with God and, and our attitudes towards others and, and, and what place we put ourselves and what place we put others in worship. You see, we could have what we feel to be the most amazing worship experience and yet God hates it. When does God hate worship? God hates our worship when it doesn't flow from an inner holiness and an outlived righteousness. Right, now, before we begin, um, I just want to make a distinction similar to in the kids' story between what a church is and what a church service is. What's a church? Well, some people think of church as a building or Sunday morning activities. That's church. Uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia, which is assembly, meeting, congregation. Disciples of Jesus have a tendency to clump together. Did you know that? We should have a tendency not to avoid each other, but to clump together. We, we get together in all sorts of situations, and that when we get together, we are the church. Whether it be in home groups or Bible studies or gathering together for a cup of tea and a yarn, we are the church. But this Bible reading is particularly referring to when the whole church gathers together. Okay, he says, when you come together, do this. You know, some people picture the New Testament church as being a very informal gathering, uh, sort of like what our home groups or small groups or our Bible study groups would be today. Now, I, I don't doubt that they used to do those things too. These groups are very important. But here he's particularly talking about when the whole church would gather together. He's talking about the equivalent of our Sunday morning worship service. And this isn't a new thing. Some people think, oh, that's only a recent invention. No, it's not. When you read the New Testament and stories of the early church, they talk about meeting together on the Lord's Day. They talk about when you come together, do this. They talk about don't stop meeting together, right? It's been an ongoing thing right from the beginning of the church. It's not a new thing. In our Bible reading today, we have a picture of inclusive worship. 
right? It's not just done by the one person. There are several people as they are gifted by God and they will have input into the service for the building up of the whole church. But that doesn't mean that everybody has some kind of leadership input at every service or or even at any service for that matter. Rather, those who have gifts that are useful for the building up of the church are able to use those gifts as long as it's done decently and in order. You see, the problem with us Christians, and I guess people in general, is we can be like a pendulum. You know what I mean by a pendulum? That thing which swings from one side to the other on the old grandfather's clock. Hey, I'm a grandpa now. Can I get grandfather clock, Robin? No. I like them. Right, but we can be like a pendulum. We can swing from one side to the other, from one extreme to the other, whereas sometimes we just need to find the sweet spot. And for some of us, our experience of church has been so bound up in the tightness of a set regimented order, and we've been pulled right over into this extreme of constraint, right over onto this one side. And sometimes we just want to be free of it. We just want to have some freedom in worship. And, and so we don't just let go of constraint. We, we rebel against it. We push away from it. We push away from control. We push away from constraint. And what happens is we're the pendulum and we swing right over to the other side, to the opposite extreme, where there is no set order. Because to us, a set order means constraint and we feel enslaved by constraint. And we would describe that what we find over on this other side as freedom. Everyone can tell a story about what God's done in the week. Anyone can bring a word from the Lord. But we don't even need people to choose songs because we'll just turn up and pick songs ourselves and and we'll have a go at singing them together. We don't need a prepared message because we can just pick a Bible reading and, and we can all take it in terms of sharing our thoughts on this Bible reading. And for some people, the lure of that sort of freedom in worship, it can feel to them like a release from slavery. And for some people, when they read today's reading, they see how different this church in Corinth is to their own experience of having constraint in worship. And they go, wow, that's what we're missing. This is the way church is supposed to be. And they rebel against constraint. But they fail to realise that the church in Corinth was in an utter mess. It was a church without constraint, sure enough. What did that look like? It was disorderly. It was unloving. It was a church filled with pride. I'm more spiritual, I'm more godly, I'm more educated, I know stuff, I don't need you to teach me, I know stuff, in fact, I'm going to do some of the teaching around here. And and this pride, it led to wrong teaching, wrong morals, a wrong understanding of God, a wrong understanding of Jesus Christ, a wrong understanding of the church. They rejected godly leadership, they had a wrong understanding of what freedom really meant, And they were disorderly and unloving in their use of spiritual gifts. And there was this real feeling of spiritual elitism there. The church in Corinth was a church in absolute chaos. 
and therefore that was an ungodly church. In verse 33, it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And so Paul's task here at the end of chapter 14 is to get that Corinthian church back on track. Right? He recognises the validity of the participation of the people of God in worship. He doesn't try and take that away. But he also sets parameters to bring order and propriety. Um, that means decency, respect, decorum to worship. So, he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And some people, that's all they read. And they go, there you go. We're supposed to all bring something to church, and we're all going to, this is how church is going to run. But then they forget about everything else that he says. Now, I want to start by saying, when Paul says each one, that doesn't mean everybody. Not everybody is a songwriter. Now, did you even pick that up as you read that? When you read, each one has a hymn, what did you think? You pick it from a songbook. How many songbooks did they have? The church had just begun. This is the early days of Christianity. Where did these Christian songs come from that are going to pick? I think it's highly probable that what he's talking about is that somebody he's saying, Hey, have, have any of you guys written a song of praise to God? Why not bring it along and share it with the church? I don't think he's, he's talking about somebody turning out and going, let's sing number 457 today because that's my favourite one. I, I don't think he's talking about that at all. There was no songbook. And he goes on, so not everybody's a songwriter. Not everybody has a gift of teaching. Not everybody has a gift of prophecy. Not everybody has a gift of tongues. Not everybody has a gift of interpretation. Now, the point that he's making here is not that everybody gets a go. When he says, let all things be done for building up, he's not saying everybody gets a go, so let's do everything, and by us all doing everything, that's going to build us up. He's not saying that. Because for the next couple of paragraphs, he explains why we should refrain from doing things. What he's saying is that when we gather together for worship, let's do only what's going to build up the whole church in its faith. Right? Don't, we're, not just, we're not going to do what's going to make me build myself up in my faith. We're not going to do what builds you up in yourself and your faith. We're only going to do what builds the whole church, all of us together, up in its faith. When the opportunity does arise for us to participate in worship, the aim of our participation isn't so that we can gain a sense of self-value because, hey, I've participated in worship today. That's not what it's about. The aim of our participation in worship is so that what we bring to offer to God, we offer it because it builds the whole church up, not just myself. All right, so it's not about me getting my turn. It's about building up the church. So let's look at a few of these examples that, that he gives of, of how we as the people of God 
contribute to the building up of the church. He says, some will bring a hymn. Now, whether it be a composition, have we got any songwriters here? Does anyone here write songs for God? Roy sort of nearly lifted his hand. Not too many. Um, but whether it be a composition or whether, or whether it is choosing some songs from a songbook. We, we do have songbooks today and we are allowed to use them and we should be using them. Uh, singing has always been a natural expression of our worship of God. Uh, some people say to me, oh, I'm not really a singer. And, and they find it really hard to sing in church. And, and I, I just don't understand that because I've always been a singer. And um, I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but I feel sorry for you. Because there's something really special about having so much a love for God that you just want to praise him. And, and sometimes the most obvious and natural way to praise him is to sing. But I have to recognise that we're not all singers. Um, and it's not only the minister or the pastor who's supposed to pick the songs for the day. I remember when I was a young fella, it was always the minister. The minister would choose the hymns and he'd ring the organist up probably on Thursday night and say, these are the hymns we're having on Sunday. And she'd say, oh, what tune would you like that one to be played to? And he'd pick a tune and um, that was the way it used to be. But it's not supposed to be only the pastor or the minister who picks the songs for the day. If you have musical ability... You can help us leading in singing. By the way, here's a little ad. We're always looking for more people willing to go on the worship leading roster. Okay, so if you have musical ability, you can help us lead the singing. We're always looking for people who are willing to choose some appropriate songs, get the music to the musicians so they can practice it, and so that we can then share together in singing praises to God. But get this. It's not about us picking our favourite songs. So, if I were to have a love for rap, hip-hop, gangster-type music, I, I don't, by the way, surprise to everyone, um, but if I did, um, and I realised I never get to sing that here uh, because everybody else hates it, probably with good reason, um, volunteering to choose the songs just so that I can make everybody get a, get a dose of my style of music isn't a good reason for me to go on the worship roster. Right? Why? Because I'm not doing it to build others up. I'm just, I'm just doing it to satisfy my own tastes and my own desires. I should choose songs that everyone can engage with. Songs that praise God. And songs that teach us about God. Have you ever realised how much we learn by what we sing? Have you ever realised that? It's really important what type of music we listen to. It can, it can change us. We learn from what we sing. How did you learn that Jesus loves you? I know how I learned it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How did you learn about grace and just how amazing it is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We learn by what we sing when we sing songs that teach. Anyway, some are gifted in music, 
but not everybody is gifted in music. If you are gifted in music, we'd love to help you lead. Um, if you're not so gifted, you might still have a song that you think, oh, we haven't had this song for a fair while, it means a lot to me. And you go, oh, I'm not actually capable of leading, but you know what you can do? You can go and talk to somebody who is going to be leading singing in the next couple of weeks and say, hey, there's this song that's been on my mind. Is there any possibility we could have that in the next few weeks? And I reckon usually it could be accommodated. A second example is to bring a lesson. Um, some of us are gifted in teaching. Uh, but does that mean that we should all give it a go? Of course not. Uh, when every Tom, Dick and Harry has a go at teaching, we can end up with some of the most crazy theologies and utter rubbish being shared in a church. Um, and yet some people will hear this and, and take it as gospel truth. And so it's the, it's the responsibility of the leaders of the church uh, to sometimes make some pretty hard decisions about who can and who cannot bring a lesson to the church. Uh, throughout the New Testament, we are constantly being reminded to watch out for false teachers. And I think we have to take this very seriously. Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he explained to Timothy that his role as a pastor and an elder of that church in Ephesus was to keep control of the teaching and make sure that it was only right teaching that was taught. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Wow. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? Not everybody is a gifted teacher. Uh, to be a gifted teacher isn't merely having enough confidence to get up in front of a crowd. There's a plenty of people who've got plenty of confidence to get up in front of a crowd. But you also need to be able to teach what's right. The content has to be right. Those who teach should be stewards of a sincere faith. That means a true faith, um, sincere to what the apostles have recorded for us in the scriptures. And here's the thing about false teachers. Most false teachers have no idea that what they're teaching is false. Uh, they make confident assertions. Uh, they're very confident about their views. Uh, but often they just end up promoting speculations. And, and sometimes they, they just love to bring in all of this weird stuff, all this fringe stuff that isn't really relevant and it's not really biblical, but to them it's new and it's exciting and, and, and it inspires them and maybe it might inspire a few others. But under it all, they don't have a sound understanding themselves. And so teaching, when he says... Let, 
let us all bring a lesson. And yet teaching isn't for everyone. The leaders of the church are responsible for ensuring that those who give a lesson are up to the task. And somebody might be up to the task of giving a lesson in one setting and not in another. So somebody might be up to the task of, of giving a kid's story, just presenting the simple gospel or teaching in Sunday school, just giving a simple kid's understanding, um, but they mightn't be up to the task of going deeper with those who are more mature. And this is a decision that needs to be made by the leaders of the church. The third example is prophecy. Um, and as we learned I think it was last week, you know, even if everybody here had a gift of prophecy, only two or at the very most three should share a prophecy in any one day. And we shouldn't just take it for granted that it's a word from the Lord. We're then supposed to test them. And likewise with the gift of languages. Not everybody has a gift of languages. But even if they did, that gift isn't to be used in church unless there's someone there to interpret it. And not everybody has a gift of interpretation. So the point that Paul is making here is we all participate in worship for praising God, for sure. But as we worship together, our primary concern should be about building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how are we built up? What does it even mean to be built up? I think verse 31 gives us a bit of a hint. It, it is speaking from the perspective of what, what is achieved through prophecy. But the purpose is for our learning and our exhortation. And we talked about that last week. Um, we often it, it uses the word encouragement. A better word is exhortation. It's an urging on in the faith. Go, keep going, keep strong in the faith. Don't give up, just keep pressing on. Right? So the purpose is for learning and that urging on in the faith. That's the purpose of a church service. Okay. So have you noticed yet that Paul isn't removing constraint for the Corinthians? He's actually adding constraint. But remember the problem I said that we as Christians have, we're like this pendulum. Sometimes people get so burnt by worship without constraint and the chaos and the disorder and the disastrous teaching and the selfishness of it all, they get burnt by all of this and so they pull right back away from it again. And what do they do? We swing right over to the other side where only those special people, only those special ordained people, the minister or the pastor, is allowed to teach. And I know some churches, I was talking to a friend of mine just the other day and and she's telling me how when their minister's away in this particular denomination, um, they have members of the congregation are accredited as readers. So they are allowed to read a message which has been written by somebody who is ordained. And, um, and they thought that was a big opening for them. Um, when I was at theological college, some of the lecturers didn't like the theology or the lack of theology found in some of the contemporary Christian music coming out at the time. 
And so they actually put together a list of songs that the students were allowed to choose in worship. And they sort of thought this A4 list of songs is plenty for you to choose from. And they sort of just set that in concrete. If it's not on the list, you're not allowed to pick it. You're not allowed to sing it in worship. Um, in some churches, the pastor leads nearly everything in worship because he's recognised as the one who can do it right. By the way, sometimes that's what happens here, not because I'm the only one who can do it right, but because I'm filling gaps. So if anyone else is wanting to step up, that would be much preferred. And so while Paul adds constraint to worship, let's not swing right over to the other side and, and bind worship up so tight that people aren't able to use the gifts that God's given them. In our church services, we need to find the sweet spot. We need to find that spot where, where we have the participation of appropriately gifted people and yet everything's done decently and everything's done in order. Now, do I think we've achieved that here? Not at all. Not at all. But that should be our aim, to be the people of God, worshipping God together, but do it decently and in order. And it's in this context of doing everything decently and in order that Paul brings up the very contentious topic of women speaking in church. Now, we've already had women speaking in church this morning, so we're all going to keep warm later on when we build a bonfire and burn them all at the stake. No. Everything has to be done decently and in order. And in their culture, women rarely were educated and it was never the done thing for them to take leadership over men. And so the generally accepted practice in all the churches was that the women should keep silent. They weren't permitted to speak. But hang on a minute. Paul's already told us back in chapter 11 the way women were supposed to conduct themselves when they pray and when they prophesy in a church service. So when Paul says they're not, speaking, not to speak in church, is he banning all speech or is he banning a particular type of speech? Well, it's pretty obvious that he can't be banning all speech because he's already talked about, okay, when you pray in church, do this. He's already talked about when you prophesy in church, do this. So he's, he's not banning all speech. What's he getting at? Well, it comes back to that other contentious passage back in chapter 11, which we talked about a couple of months ago, where it all talks about prominence and shame. And in particular, in God's created order, that a wife should not make herself prominent over her husband and lord it over her husband, and the way the wife should not shame her husband just as the man should not make himself prominent over Jesus Christ and he should not do things to shame Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, this reading that we had this morning, we've got verses 26 to 32 and it's talking mostly about prophecy and about how two or three prophets should speak and everyone else should weigh up what's being said. All right, so he's got that bit. And then we've got verses, so verses 26 to 32. 
Then after this little bit, we've got verses 36 to 40, which is also talking about the gift of prophecy. And it seems like for a little bit there, he goes away from talking about prophecy and tongues and this, that and the other, and goes to this little bit on women, and then he comes back to prophecy and tongues and whatnot for two verses. What do you think verses 34 and 35 stuck there right there in the middle might be talking about? We're talking about prophecy, then we've got two verses, and then we're talking about prophecy. What do you think these two verses might be talking about? Prophecy. We've just been told that when we hear a prophecy, we need to weigh up what is being said. That means we need to decide, is this prophecy? Is it really from God? Is it true? Or is it false? And we talked about this last week, how, how we are to determine this. And we actually have to judge what the prophet has shared. Does it line up with Scripture? Is it consistent with other prophecies? Uh, what about the content of the character of the person who's brought the message? Does he have the, the fruit of the Spirit? Is he living a righteous life or, or is he a really bad egg? And I think what Paul's saying here is the wife shouldn't disrespect her husband by being the one who makes that judgment and by being the one who interrogates him and questions him over his prophecy that he's brought there in the church in front of people. If she wants to question him about it, about what he said, she can do that at home. It would be shameful for her to pick him and, and the prophecy that he's brought to all the pieces in front of everybody there in the church and to cut her husband down. Now, when we read it with that sort of context, it, it makes a lot more sense. Why would he be talking about prophecy, jump to these couple of verses about women and then go back onto prophecy again? But having said that, I do want to make clear that there are other passages that do indicate that it is God's order for the men to be the teachers in the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is quite open that it is his practice that, that only men, uh, that, that he doesn't allow women to teach men. But we're not going to get into that one today um, because that's a different Bible reading. I just wanted to acknowledge that. It seems to me that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the issue is respectability in their culture and having a proper respect between husbands and wives. Uh, but I don't want to pretend that there isn't more at play here. Uh, we just don't have the time to cover that today. That would be probably a full day's Bible study. And there's whole denominations who don't agree with each other or even among themselves and some denominations are still trying to work it out whether they allow women to preach or not. But something that is at play here and it's something that Paul has been building on through this whole letter is the principle that love limits liberty. It's about because I love others Sometimes I'm going to give up my rights. I give up my rights or what I perceive to be my rights for the sake of the other. 
And so whether it be not speaking in tongues because there's no one there to interpret, or whether it be not giving a prophecy because there's already been one or two prophecies today and we don't need any more, or whether it be not teaching in the church service because it's not culturally proper for me to do it, it's about me giving up my rights for the sake of the other. And when we, as, and when we are a people who do this, when we are a people who give up our rights for the sake of the other and for the sake of propriety and for the sake of order, that's when we begin to grasp what the church is truly supposed to be like and what worship is truly supposed to be like. Worship isn't all about me. Worship isn't all about you. It's actually, we, we talk sometimes about giving ourselves away in worship and some people think that means just to let go of all self and just go into some la-la land. I don't think that's really what it's, we should be thinking about. Giving ourselves away in worship means not standing up for my own rights but caring more about how we as a church can worship. Jesus has told us that true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. And today we've learned in our church meetings they should be done decently and orderly. And everything we do should be for the building up of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you um, Lord, I want to thank you, firstly, that, that you make us worthy to worship. You refer to us as your saints. What a strange thing that is, because we know how, how utter rubbish we can be. And yet, Lord, I want to thank you that through the blood of Jesus, you take us and you make us holy. You forgive us of all of our sins. You, you wash us. You purify us of all unrighteousness and you make us pure and spotless and holy. You turn us into your saints, your holy ones. And so, Lord, I want to thank you that when we worship, we come together not in our state of brokenness, but in our state of holiness, not through our own doing, but entirely through your redemption. And, Lord, I just pray that our worship would continually reflect the holiness that you've given us. That our relationships with one another would be holy. That the worship that we bring would be holy. And Lord, I just pray for this church here of Bush Disciples. Lord, I ask that you would raise up people in this church um, who you would be calling to lead worship in various ways, whether it be singing or whether it be bringing a lesson or whether it be bringing a prophecy or a tongue, um, or whether it be bringing a kid's story or whether it be bringing a lesson to the Sunday school. Lord, I just pray that you would raise up your leaders in this church for your glory and for the building up of the body. In Jesus' name, amen.